All right, so um, in light of hearing the confessions of Ryan Lister's dating life, um, I have my own confession to make, and that is contrary to popular belief, um, during the college years, I was not a ladies' man. Um, I did not know how to talk to women. I was terrified of them. I didn't know how to act around them. I sweated profusely um, when I had to be in a close sort of area, and I had to make conversation um, with them. And, and the funny thing is, is that this didn't change when I started dating Sarah. I didn't, like, become suave um, and just, like, smooth. Uh, in fact, the first date we went on, I remember, was at Liquid Planet, and I ended up talking. We're at the bar at Liquid Planet. Um, first of all, who on a date sits at a bar? Idiot. Um, <laughs> but next to, so Sarah was here, I was here, and then this random dude was here, <laughs> and this random dude heard us talking about a missions trip that Sarah was on. He's like, dude, I was just in Turkey and toured the underground churches. And I'm like, that's really interesting. And I talked to him <laughs> for the whole date. <laughs> and to show you how helpless I was, uh, I left the date feeling like I nailed it. And, uh, and Sarah left the date talking to her mom on the phone saying that we would never go out again. Um, but we did go out again. And actually on the very next date, we discussed marriage. And the intentionality of that discussion really brought ease to what I was doing. And I became, I was still horribly awkward, but I became manageably, like a little less awkward enough to marry. Um, but, but that happened. But, but what changed was that when we, when we passed a point in our relationship where we weren't just two kids looking to have a fun time or goof off in our youth, but we looked at each other with the potential of being bound together in marriage, that realization of a potential relationship changed everything about our relationship. It allowed me to act rightly. It allowed Sarah to act rightly. And as humans, on a general level, we all face a similar point when it comes to our relationship with God. And where with me and Sarah, it was a relationship between awkward, sweaty Tyler and less awkward, still sweaty Tyler. Um, for us as Christians, that divide is a divide between belief and unbelief. You can hear Jesus, you can talk about Jesus, you can, you, can, you can have your life consumed with doing things around Jesus, but unless you ultimately cross from belief to unbelief, you will not truly know who Jesus is. You will not truly understand Jesus, you will not truly feel the love of Jesus, you will not truly know how to act as one who is in relationship with Jesus. And what I want you to hear, and what Mark is going to show us tonight, is that everything you do here on this earth, comes down to your relationship with Jesus. Do you believe in him, or do you refu refuse to believe in him? And this text we're looking at in Mark today is a transition text. Because those of you who were with us last week, we saw the very last verse we looked at. The Pharisees went and held counsel with the Heridians to find out how to destroy Jesus. Okay? It wasn't a happy ending last week. People want to kill Jesus. This was really the first point of conflict we saw with the crowds around Jesus' life. And so they want to kill Jesus. And then next week, when we pick up, the day before all of you guys like are pumped to go to the retreat. No one's going to sleep next Thursday night because you're going to be so excited for the retreat the next day and we're going to be texting each other and on Facebook and MySpace and it'll be great. Um, yeah, MySpace. Anyway, <laughs> next week, next week, Jesus begins his, 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 the full-fledged public ministry. We see some of Jesus' parables starting next week. We see really the kickoff of what we know as Jesus' ministry. But, but there's a lot of text that happens between last week and next week. 
And it's really a transitional thing, a time between two hedges. The, the hedge one of harsh opposition and a desire to murder Jesus, and hedge two of Jesus really starting his public preaching ministry. And the whole weight of Mark's message between these two things is how do you relate to Jesus? How do you relate to Jesus? So we're going to look at that tonight, um, but I want to pray first. So Lord, um, I thank you for this group um, who is here. Uh, and Lord, I thank you that, that what brings us here, we have fun with one another. Um, we enjoy this time of fellowship. Um, we enjoy singing and, and hearing music and, and worshiping. But at the center of what brings us here, Lord, I want it to be this message of Jesus. And as we preach the word of God, may we get a clearer picture of who Christ is so that we can relate to him better. We relate to what is known, so make Jesus known to us tonight so that we may respond in right worship and live right lives. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for a Jesus who died and rose again for our sins. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. So, uh, what we're going to look at tonight, the first verses are Mark 3, uh, verses 7 through 11. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. And when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirit, unclean spirit saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them, not to make him known. And so this piece is really a setup piece. It's setting the scene for what's going to happen in the following verses. And there are just two things quickly I want us to note about this passage. The first is the gravity of Jesus. The gravity of Jesus. Look at this map. People were amazed at my PowerPoint skills when I made this today. Um, this map that's going to come up next. You see... Um, Tiberius is a really big word there. The big blue spot up there is the Sea of Galilee. And up until this point, Jesus' ministry has been almost, almost confined to that area of Galilee. But did you see what the text says? It says people were coming from Galilee, which was the area um, just to the east. So you could, or to the west. You could progress the slide there, Chris. So from Galilee there, um, Judea, who is down to the south. Hit it again, Chris. So that whole area is Judea, and then Jerusalem, and then beyond the Jordan, which is also called Transjordan, so that whole area, or in Idumea, down there in the south, if you can see it, and then Transjordan, which is off to the east, and it was that whole area that actually extended up and right off the screen, and then also in Tyre um, and Sidon, which you could see up um, in the west there. And, and the interesting thing is that Jesus is, is drawing people to himself from a large geographical area. For those of you who were at Sovereign Hope a few weeks ago, um, John preached on Pentecost in Acts, and we saw that people were coming from all around the known world and were all assembled um, to hear uh, the gospel at Pentecost. But here, in the early parts of Jesus' ministry, he's already drawing a huge geographical region to himself. And Jesus is a Jew, right? We know that. Jesus is a Jew, and he came to fulfill Old Testament prophecies. And when Jews looked at the Old Testament, they saw that a Messiah was going to come and a Messiah was going to reestablish a Jewish rule. And so the Jews, when they see who, the Messiah, they're hoping for like 
a Jew-centered universe. And yet, the interesting thing about what's going on here is that Idumea and Transjordan are like 50-50 Jew and Gentile. And we see people coming from them. And from Tyre and Sidon, they were predominantly, if not wholly, Gentile. And so here's this Jesus, this Messiah, which the Old Testament pointed to, and yet it's not just for Jews. Jesus is attracting people of all races. And this is important in light of what we looked at last week. We saw Jesus as the new David, the most powerful king of Israel. We saw Jesus redefine the Sabbath, which was given to the Jews. And here we also see Jesus is the new Israel. And really, if you stop and think about it, why are we talking about this? An audience that's primarily non-Jewish, why are we still gathering and talking about this book that happened 2,000 years ago that was built on top of a Jewish book that happened up to 6,000 years ago? Why are we talking about this? It's because Jesus didn't just come for Jews. Jesus came for all people. Jesus' plan was not to have a small ethnic group. Jesus' plan was to have a, a nation of every tongue, tribe, and ethnicity coming and worshiping him. And we're beginning to see that even in the early parts of Jesus' ministry. So that's the first thing. We see the gravity of Jesus. And secondly, look back at Mark 3, verse 11. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. So amidst these large crowds, you see the intensity? Jesus said, hey, get a boat so these crowds don't crush me, okay? I hate crowds. I can't stand crowds, but I've never been in a crowd that I thought I was going to die. I've been in some mosh pits, and I never thought I was going to die. I'm like, this is uncomfortable, but never like, I need a boat or I'm going to die. And there are these huge crowds of people from all over the countryside, and yet the clearest confession of who Jesus is comes from what? From demons. The clearest confession of who Jesus is doesn't come from the people or the religious officials. It comes from the demons. You see, people still don't see the truth of who Jesus is. They're excited about him. They're clamoring about him. They're ready to crush him, but they don't see the truth of who Jesus is. And so the scene of this portion of Jesus' life is huge crowds and limited knowledge. And that's important considering what happens next. We see the next part of the story picking up in verse 13. And he, that's Jesus, went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. So amidst all that is going on, huge crowds, Jesus calls twelve men to live in a unique and specific relationship with him. And these men that Jesus called, and you'll see, I'm not going to read them right now, but if you have your Bible open, um, these, these men, uh, these are the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles. And Jesus uses that term apostle there, whom he called apostles. And apostle literally, literally means in Greek, I just took it so I feel more educated saying this, um, means sent out, the sent out ones. And so that's what apostle means. These are big guys, these 12 apostles are big guys in, in, in the history of the church. And yet, what is it that makes these 12 men distinct? What is it? They're not from powerful families. They don't have large amounts of wealth or resources that Jesus sees, and he's like, we can make a strategic alliance together. They aren't bred to be religious historians or teachers of the law, as some Jewish children are. What makes Jesus' disciples his disciples is Jesus himself. 
Jesus is the only distinct thing these men have going on. The defining moment of the disciples' faith isn't their readiness, isn't their preparedness, or their prior relationships. The defining moment of their life is Jesus himself. Jesus went up on a mountainside and he called 12 men whom he desired. Jesus was standing in with thousands of people, okay? Mark goes through great lengths. To, how many times have we heard crowd in the four weeks or five weeks we've been going through Mark? Crowds and crowds and crowds and crowds. But who and what separates these men from the crowd? Amidst these faces and faces of faces, what makes these 12 men distinct for the rest of Christian history? Jesus does. Jesus makes these men distinct. You see, this is true for all who are saved. A good question is, what has qualified you for your faith? If you're a Christian, if you see that Jesus died for your sins, what qualifies you for that faith? What qualifies you to be in relationship with God? You may have heard the old phrase, and I don't know if it's, a, it's in a country song or something, or my grandpa used to always say it because he was honorary. He'd say, heaven won't have me and hell won't keep me. Kind of that idea that's this folk thing where it's like, ah, we're just bad people and no one wants us. And oftentimes, um, we, where we won't verbally say that, we have this idea that we're too messed up, we're too sinful, we're too broken to be used by Jesus. But it was never about your performance. It's about Jesus' performance. The disciples had done nothing to deserve the affection and calling of Christ, and yet Christ called them to himself to be in an intimate relationship with him. Jesus qualifies you to be Christian. Jesus is the weight of your salvation. You see, Catholics, I feel like, have almost ruined, here I'm picking on the Catholics, which they need it sometimes. Catholics have almost ruined the word saint. Because in order to be a saint in the Catholic Church, you have to be the holiest of the holy, the purest of the pure, the most popular of the popular people who did awesomely good things. And so they saint people. There's a ceremony for becoming a saint and regulations for sainthood. But look at what Jesus does for us. Colossians chapter 1, verses 11 through 12. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So in Colossians, Paul is saying, give thanks to God because through Jesus, and we actually see that in verse 13 if we're looking at Colossians, through Jesus, God has done this. Through Jesus, you are qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints in life. What separates you from the, the great men of faith? Nothing does, really. Jesus has called you. Jesus has qualified you for your faith. For those who Christ has brought to himself, we're all saints. We're all saints. But in light of that, I don't want to lose the importance of these 12 men because for the rest of Jesus' ministry, these 12 men play a really specific and integral part. And in the early church, those of you who are with us at Sovereign Hope going through Acts, we saw that the 12 apostles, when Judas hung himself after betraying Jesus, they replaced him because there is something unique about those 12 men historically. Jesus appointed 12 for a reason. And I don't want to lose sight of that. And, and everything he does from this point forward is really centering around these 12 dudes, right? He, he decodes his parables to them. He gives parables to the crowd and just leaves the crowd. And the crowd's like, we don't know what's up. And yet the disciples are like, we don't know what's up. And he's like, okay, let me tell you. 
They get a special interpretation of things. He gives them VIP teaching sessions he doesn't give to the crowds. He brings them with him everywhere. They see him heal. They see him teach. They see him do miracles. These 12 men will know Jesus in the flesh in ways no one else will ever know. These people saw, heard, and observed more about Jesus' life on earth than anyone else. And Jesus gave them a charge. Verses 14 through 15. It says this, And he appointed the twelve whom he named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach, and have authority to cast out demons. So Jesus gives them authority to cast out demons. Jesus commissions them to go and preach, and we saw that. Because remember, at this point, it, you're, you're, the Bible heading says he called 12, but we'd already seen earlier in Mark, Jesus had already called three. We already read that story, and so there's actually only nine um, that he's calling at this point, which makes 12, which no one cares about, so I'm going to keep going. Um, but the first thing we saw when he called the first three is that I have called you to be fishers of men, to make you fishers of men. And so what is the means of being fishers of men? Preaching. Jesus says, I'm sending you out to preach. That's what it means to be fishers of men. That's what it means to be my disciples. That's what it means to be my followers. So he gives them authority over demons. He gives them uh, a call to go preach. But those two, equally valuable, are secondary to the first purpose that Christ won them. And did you see that? If you, if you have your Bibles, you could see it. And the first thing he did, he, he appointed them so that they might be with him so that they might be with Jesus. Why? Why these 12 men? Right, we should be asking two why questions here. Why them and why now? Why them and why now? Why them? Why did Jesus need these men? Thousands of people, Jesus chose 12. Like if you're going to choose compadres, why not choose thousands? I had the unfortunate displeasure um, of watching the new Transformers movie, all two hours and 80,000 minutes of it. Um, and in it, uh, uh, Optimus Prime is sending out his little distress beacon that he always sends out. Um, and he's calling Autobots to him for the purpose of using those Autobots to help him in his cause. Optimus Prime can't do it on his own, so he needs his, his robot buddies who always have lesser cool cars than the bad guys. Um, but Optimus Prime needed the Autobots because he needed their help. Is that why Jesus chose these 12 guys? Did Jesus need their help? Was Jesus un Without these 12 men, would Jesus have been unable to do what he desired to do? And so, looking at these crowds, he's like, yeah, I could get at least 12 people who know what they're doing. They could come and help me. No. Jesus didn't need men, but Jesus chose men. And see, the thing about Christ is that he chose men not because he needed the men, but because the men needed Jesus. You see, Jesus didn't appoint the 12 so that the 12 would serve Jesus. Jesus appointed the 12 so that he could serve the 12. Later on in Mark, we see the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Jesus appointed men because we need Jesus. Humanity needs Jesus to enter into relationship with them. And the cool thing is that he brought them the defining moment of their discipleship. Sure, they were called to preach. They were called to cast out demons. They saw his teaching. But the primary defining thing of their relationship is what? Jesus is called to be with him. To be in relationship with Jesus. They needed that. And we need that. 
My second why, when we look at this, the, the disciples, is why now? Why now? Things, if you know the biblical story here, things are about to get really messy. And in fact, we're only one verse away from things getting really awkward in the story of Jesus. And Jesus knew what was going on. We see in Ephesians 1, before the foundations of the world, God had a plan for us through the cross of Christ. So Jesus knew that he was going to face opposition. Jesus knew that he was going to be hunted. Jesus knew he was going to be killed. Jesus knew he was going to rise again. And we see in the Bible that the resurrected Jesus roamed the countryside for some 40 days talking to hundreds of people. Wouldn't that have been a better time to call disciples? Right? I beat death. I conquered everything. Look at me. I was a dead man. Now I'm alive. Now you should follow me. Right? Skip all the opposition, no conflict, no beatings, no whippings, no mockery, no death march, no bloody crucifixion, no scattering of disciples. That, by a logical standard, would have been a better place. It could have achieved the exact same thing, that same thing, same thing. Jesus would have lived, died, and rose again. It would have been the exact same thing. That would have been less messy, though, to call people into relationship then. Why did Jesus do it now, this early, this soon? Before all of this stuff, you see, Jesus called the disciples now because he wanted them to see the gospel in the midst of affliction. Jesus called the disciples now because he was preparing them for life in the valley. He was preparing them for life in our mess. The valley of Christ already being crucified or the peak of Christ being crucified on one side, and the peak of Christ finally coming back on the other. And in this valley is where the disciples lived, and in this valley is where we live. Life in this mess. You see, the gospel isn't some theoretical utopian dream that religious people hold on to, waiting and hoping for a perfect world. The gospel is the remedy for the broken world. The gospel is the light and the healing amidst this mess, amidst this brokenness. The gospel isn't called to be separate from it, but the gospel is called to be distinct inside of it. And we see this mess happen almost right away. Verses 20 and 21, immediately after Jesus calls his 12, they went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not eat. The crowd just keeps getting in the way for Jesus. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. So immediately we see conflict. The crowds are there. They won't let Jesus eat. His family's there, and he's like, hey, maybe my family will feed me. And his family's like, nope, you're crazy, Jesus. Come with us. We're going to the loony bin. They're trying to take Jesus away from where he is. There's opposition starting right now from his family and, in a sense, from the crowds, and it's just the start of it. Because look at what happens next. Verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. And so can you imagine, okay, you're one of these 12, right? You're up on a mountain, Jesus calls you, and would, hey, be with me, preach, cast out demons. We're like, this is pretty good. And then you walk down, and his family's like, dude, this guy's crazy, don't follow him. Right? This guy's a lunatic, he's mad, we're taking him home. You're like, okay, that's weird, maybe just weird relatives. But then, like, Jesus is a religious figure, and you see, like, this body of religious people coming up, and they're like, hey, by the way, that's Satan. <laughs> that's what they just said. So Jesus' family, on one hand, thinks he's crazy, and the religious officials who should know Jesus best say he's crazy, and they say he's possessed by Beelzebul. <laughs> this is Satan. Do you see the irony of these two camps here? 
Here we have the demons and 12 random dudes having the clearest picture of Jesus. And yet, Jesus' family and the religious authorities who studied the Old Testament, which was supposedly prophesying the Messiah, the two people groups we would expect to know Jesus clearly and personally, they don't get it. The insiders don't see who Jesus is, but the outsiders do. Those who would naturally know Jesus are the ones who are missing the point and missing it badly. Okay? There are a lot of people who don't believe that Jesus is the Savior. There's less people who would call him Satan. And yet these are what the pastors of the day are doing. They're saying, this man does these works because he is the prince of demons. And look at how Jesus answers them. Verses 23 through 30. And he called to them and he said to them in parables. So this is the first parable we see of Jesus' ministry. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit has, never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So, a lot happens in that text. But the first thing is that Jesus responds to these Pharisees by logic. He breaks it down logically, okay? He says, listen, guys, smarty pants, if I'm Satan and I'm coming here and casting out Satan's demons, that's not beneficial for me, right? This is like business logic 101. Jesus isn't, like some things, when Jesus says it, it's like a deep theological punch to us. This isn't, okay? Jesus is like, hey guys, I'm not coming to harm myself. Satan's business is not to harm himself. Satan's business is to harm you guys. And just like, idiots, a house divided against itself won't stand. It, if I came to accomplish a kingdom, I'm not going to destroy my kingdom in the midst of accomplishing it. And so Jesus answers it with logic here. And then he says, I came to forgive all sins. All sins will be forgiven except one. One sin, which he calls the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Now this verse, if you've been around Christian circles in any sense, there's, there are some people who get super wound up over this verse and they're like, what is this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Now this verse is not meant to bring us worry. This verse is meant to bring us confidence, okay? Put yourself in the context here. This isn't like, oh, okay, you didn't go to church. You blasphemed the Holy Spirit, okay? That's not what's going on here. These dudes just called Jesus Satan, okay? That's a little different than what's going on in your life. Okay? You don't feel like your heart is warm with God right now. Okay? You're not calling him Satan. Okay? That's what the context of this passage is. And so that what's going on here is that Jesus, and that's why Mark added that disclaimer at the end. He said, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Mark knew that we'd just freak out over that for days. And so he's like, stop, stop. He's speaking to this current situation. And at the bottom of this current situation, why are they calling Jesus Satan? I mean, we could say because they get, they get it wrong. But at the bottom of this issue is their unbelief. The bottom of this issue 
is unbelief. Those who see Jesus clearly don't call him Satan because they believe that Jesus is who Jesus says he is. What Jesus is saying here is that for those who believe, all sins will be forgiven. All sins, the deepest, darkest, most scandalous, most scarlet red sins will be forgiven. But for those who refuse to believe in me, there is eternal damnation. You see, this isn't an issue, are you going to be a moral person or are you going to be an immoral person? Are you going to be a good person or are you going to be a bad person? The stakes are real. And what Jesus is saying here is if you are a person who continually does not believe in me, who goes to your grave rejecting the Holy Spirit, you're going to spend eternity in hell. This is a matter of life and death. The bold claim of unbelief has a harsh punishment. And it's not simply do you believe or do you not believe. That question is true and that question is real. But what's at stake is will you live or will you die? And the unfortunate thing about all of this is, is that the Bible speaks to us in our current circumstance and the Bible dictates where we are. In your sin, you are dead in your trespasses and iniquity. In your sin, you are held captive. You are incapable of salvation. And that's you, okay? It says you can't do anything. You're dead, dying, rotten, and buried. And it says to top that off, even if you think you could do something, this is the devil's world. The devil's got control of what's going on here right now in this sinful humanity. And I'm surprised even Jesus says that. Jesus says the devil has a certain amount of authority over this world. This is a world where we're all drinking Satan's Kool-Aid and we have no idea that the poison is slowly killing us. That's our status in this world. But look at what Jesus said in verse 27. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. You see, Satan is the strong man here. Satan is the roaring lion. Satan has the world in his death grip. Paul calls Satan the prince of the power of the air, the mightiest might the world will ever know outside of Jesus. And the strong man, the one who has authority over all humanity, has been beat because someone stronger has come. Jesus says, the strongest authority you know, I'm stronger than that. Jesus has come to loose the chains of death by binding the man who put us in it. By binding the man who enslaved us. The ultimate man has come and he has come to plunder death. I love that word that Jesus uses. He didn't just come to overcome it. He didn't just come to free us. He didn't just come to defeat Satan. He came to plunder Satan and take back what is his. Jesus says, amidst this sin, amidst your deadness of heart, the stronger man has come and I will plunder and I will free. I was thinking on this passage while I was writing the sermon today, which is always good when you're writing a sermon, just to think about the passage. Um, and Jesus is, is responding to the Pharisees here. Pharisees have a question. Jesus, or Pharisees, they don't have a question. They have a claim. Jesus is Satan. And Jesus responds to that. But what I, we talked about this. Jesus knows what's going to happen. He knows who's going to put him there. He knows that by saying this to the Pharisees, they're not going to change. But then I realized, why? This seems kind of weird that it's like crowds and then the Pharisees are, and then in the middle is the disciples. 
But it's not weird if you think that who needed this message the most? The disciples did. Why did Jesus wait for opposition to call the disciples? Because the disciples needed to hear the message that Jesus has overcome it. If the disciples were going to do anything, they needed to know that Jesus was going to overcome it. They needed to hear this. Look at what happens immediately afterwards, verses 31 through 35. And his mother and his brothers come. So, so, so they still think he's crazy. They're following him around. And standing outside, they, they, they uh, sent to him and called him. And the crowd was sitting around him. And they said, your mother and brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mothers and brothers. For whoever does the will of God he is my brother and sister and mother. You see, we see opposition from the scribes who oppose Jesus with wrong academic views. We see opposition from his family who oppose him thinking that because they have a relationship with him, they can dictate who Jesus is and what he does. And we see this opposition growing and yet Jesus defines the priority of relationship with him through what? believing and doing. The scribes knew him thoroughly. They knew the Old Testament. They knew what was coming and they missed it. The family related with him. They grew with him. They ate together and they didn't see it. What matters most in your life is not your knowledge of Jesus. It's not your proximity to the gospel, your church attendance, or moral codes. What matters most in your life is are you willing to believe and follow Jesus? And if you are, you're a disciple. And if you are, you're on the side of the stronger man. You see, faith is the ultimate relationship. And Jesus frames faith here as knowing and doing. John is one of the disciples we just saw named. And he wrote an epistle in 1 John. And John, like, like I said, the disciples knew everything about Jesus. They lived with him. They knew what Jesus called them to do. And look at what John says in 1 John 2, verse four, 2, verses 2 through 4. He is the propitiation for our sins. That propitiation means appeasement. He is the appeasement for our sins, not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. John says, if we know Jesus, we follow Jesus. If we believe in Jesus, we do like Jesus. And that's exactly what Jesus said. He said, what's my family? Not knowledge, not, not strictly relationship. It's believing and doing. It's knowing and following. Now remember what Jesus called the disciples to do? To be with him, to preach in his name, and to cast out demons. Jesus knew, okay, we've established that. Jesus knows things. He knew that the majority of these 12 men he just called were going to die doing the very thing he just told them to do. They're going to be nailed to crosses upside down, thrown off buildings, dipped in vats of boiling oil, isolated on islands, bitten by swords, shipwrecked, persecuted, mocked, murdered, and scorned. So what is it that motivated these 12 men amidst all of this conflict? Why did they do this? Why did they stick with it? Why didn't they fizzle out? Why did they do what Jesus called them to do? Because Jesus, 
the one who bounds Satan and brings us into relationship with God is stronger than any evil this world will ever know. And it's better to know him and do rightly than to be without him and spend eternity in hell. See, the disciples wouldn't have been able to do what they were called to do if they didn't have the right relationship with Jesus. The disciples wouldn't have had the power to do what they were called to do if they didn't see Jesus as the source of their power, if they didn't see the reality of the strong man who had come to beat the devil. So what does this mean for us? Two questions. Do you believe and are you doing believer things? Do you believe and are you doing believer things? For the first question, believe because Jesus has bought your belief. Believe because Jesus is the stronger man that came to the only other authority you knew and bound him, broke him, and, and dismantled him to free you from slavery. Look at what Paul says in Romans 6, 7 through 10. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we had died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Christ. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he dies, he dies to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Christ has qualified you. Christ has enabled you. Christ has defeated sin in your heart. Believe in Christ. And by believing in Christ, be amazed at your belief because everything we just talked about went into that. It's not you stumbling upon a great inner light. It's not you realizing you want to be a good person. Why do you believe? Because Jesus died for your belief. That's the weight of our salvation. Jesus died for our belief. And then we live a new life for Jesus. And for those who are living, do you see the reality we face? See, Jesus didn't call his disciples to live one day, and, and we see that in the new heavens and new earth. John talked about that in Acts. There will one day be 12 thrones for the 12 apostles in heaven in a perfect creation. That's the end, but that's not the immediate. We live in a life between this side of the cross and this side of death. We live in the midst of belief and unbelief, and in the middle of that, there's mess. There's pain, there's suffering, there's opposition, there's brokenheartedness. And, and do, you, do you realize that the message of your salvation is indeed the message of your salvation, but it's also folly to those who aren't saved? It's also foolishness. It's also a stumbling block, a stone of offense. And yet in this mess, not in the safe confines of the church only, in this mess, in this broken world, we're called to preach Christ, witness Christ, care for others, reach the lost, worship God to the glory of Jesus forever. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. That's what it means to know Jesus. Are you doing that? What is our confidence in this as we face affliction? What is it that drives us to see what Jesus told us to do and to see that only by doing do we really show we belong, know, and have relationship? Jesus drives us because the gospel was birthed in affliction. Through the suffering of Christ, we are saved. And our hope is that in our current suffering, we belong to a God who, who owns us wholly through Jesus Christ. And so my question is, are you with him? Are you with him? 
Are you just focusing on, on am I preaching or am I, am I sharing the gospel or am I reading my Bible or am I going to church but you're not with Jesus because if you're not with Jesus, if you don't know Jesus, if you don't treasure Jesus, none of those matters because it won't stand up when things get hard. It won't last but for those who are with Jesus. Things are hard but things are worth it. Because we know Jesus has bought our freedom and enabled our ability to live in the face of opposition. Stop thinking like Pharisees and thinking that knowledge is the only sign of faith. Stop living like Jesus' family and thinking that proximity and casual relationships lets you dictate how you treat Jesus, lets you gain access into his salvation, and start living like a disciple and doing disciple-like things because we belong to the Father who holds the world and holds our life in his loving plan and has commissioned us through the power of Christ to be qualified with the saints to labor, love, and preach the message of Jesus Christ. So let's do it. Let's pray. Lord, we, we come before you. Um, we can't grasp the reality and the weight of our salvation through Christ. We, we, we just, we can't. And Lord, we, when, when, when Jesus talks about the strong man, we have no idea how strong his grip was on us. We have no idea what that death was like because we were blind to it. And Lord, I pray you make us aware of our great salvation in Jesus, the one who came and bound the strong man and plundered this world to bring those into salvation, to buy our belief, to call us to be with him, to then go and to preach. Lord, make us preachers, make us disciples, but more importantly, Importantly, Lord, make us believers in you. Lord, you've bought us with a great price. You've commissioned us with a great cause. And you've promised us a great victory because you've already defeated Satan. Give us clarity as we live in this mess between the hedges of the gospel. We pray this in your name. Amen.